Well, good morning, Bethel Church, and uh, today is one of these multi-campus preaching days for me, and that uh, means that uh, here, first service, I'm going to be jetting out to our Cedar Lake campus, and our other two uh, services here at Crown Point, I'll be uh, with you digitally. So as we come to God's Word this morning, we get into it now, and uh, I remember some years ago that we had a funeral here of a very beloved man in the Crown Point community, a man by the name of Bob Brown. And many of you might know, remember Bob and his, uh, his wife and their family. Bob taught at uh, Crown Point schools for years. He was a coach, football coach, I think basketball coach, like the whole community knew him. And uh, he was, I think, an eighth grade teacher in the school system, and he was known for his object lessons. If you went to his class, he had object lessons. Well, so the day of the viewing and the funeral, tons of people here, casket right here, and uh, as people filed by the casket, they saw something interesting in Bob's hands. By his request, they put a fork in his hands, in the casket. And of course, everybody that filed by was saying, What's with the fork? Well, he loved object lessons, and the object lesson was that when you go to somebody's house and the main course is done and they're cleaning the the dishes up, if the hostess says, keep your fork, what does that mean? Dessert is coming. That's right. Dessert is coming. Or to say it this way, the best is yet to come. And so he had a fork in his hand to communicate For him, the best is yet to come. Biblically speaking, for Christians, the best is yet to come. For the unbeliever, this is as good as it gets. But for the Christian, this is as bad as it gets. The best is yet to come. Now, where does this thought come from? It comes from all over in the Bible. I mean, Old Testament, New Testament. It comes from the words of Jesus, the teaching of the apostles. It is all over in Scripture. But there are a few passages that hit it in the way that the passage we have in front of us today does. Here in Romans 8, as we continue to work our way through Romans, as we continue to to inch our way through Romans 8, we come now to some very precious words that I will read, and then we're going to just get into it. What does it mean? How does it apply to our life? But here's what the Apostle Paul writes. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. May God bless his word to us today. 
So we have this theme that Paul introduces in verse 17 and builds now in verses 18 and following about suffering and glory. First suffering, then glory. We see that in the life and the ministry of Jesus. First suffering, then glory. But he takes this paradigm and he applies it to creation in verses 18 through 22 and then to Christians in verses 23 and 24. So creation groans now, but someday will be set free. Christians groan now, but someday will have glory and eternal life. And so the theme here is from groans to glory. And this is all set up here in verse 18, which I'll read again. For I consider, think of what this means. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, or some translations say in us. What is the point of verse 18? It's just this basic truth that our future is far more wonderful than our present. Our future as Christians is far more wonderful than our present. And here we have Paul, he's writing to these Roman Christians. He, He was an apostle, but he was also a pastor. He wants to encourage them. And what was it like to be a Christian in the Roman, the Greco-Roman world of the day? It was hard. I mean, Christians are not going to be viewed positively for three centuries. And so for all of this time, there's tremendous persecution. And certainly in Rome, the epicenter of power, there was persecution. Paul himself would be arrested, uh, under arrest in Rome in just a few years. So to be a Christian... The recipients, remember we're reading somebody else's mail here, okay? To be a Christian in Rome was hard. Paul wants them to understand that it's hard now, but it's going to get better. It's going to get far better than it is. Suffering now, glory to come. Here's 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17 famously says it this way. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What does that verse mean? It means keep your fork, Christian. The trouble that you're in today is not going to always be there. In fact, There is coming a time for us when those afflictions will be no more and all it will be for us is glory. And someday we're going to look back on these days and the trouble of living in this broken world and we're going to think it was worth it. It was so worth it. Now verses 18 through 22 focus on, and that's going to be my focus today, focus on this groans to glory as it relates to the created world around us, to creation. And as many of you know, this touches on a theme that is so very dear to me uh, as it relates to the, the created world, the stunning beauty in the world around us, the beauty of God as the creator God creating in this world, amazing beauty. I've only written one book in my life and it was on this subject. And so I... This has meant so much to me in my life. And this takes it to, like, it expands the theme regarding the future in wonderful ways. Again, look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
The, eager, the creation waits with eager longing. Does this mean that you know, the, the deer and the squirrel are having, you know, we don't see them, but privately they're having these little meetings. Man, it's going to be great when, those, when, uh, when Jesus comes again, like a far side cartoon or something. No, it doesn't mean they're not having these private conversations about what the future is going to be like. What Paul does here is what the Bible often does, and that is it personifies creation. It gives to creation human characteristics. So for example, in the Psalms, we have trees clapping their hands and mountains skipping like rams. And Jesus said at his triumphal entry uh, that if the children didn't sing, the very rocks might sing with joy. So trees don't have hands and rams uh, you know, don't skip around uh, or mountains don't skip around. And the only music that rocks like is, of course, rock music, which they play at the Hard Rock Cafe, which combined with bread is rock and roll. I just had to do it. I'm sorry. I had, I'm a dad now, so the puns, it just comes to me. I don't know why, but I had fun writing that. And I'm, so I'm digressing into music theory here, but I'll move on. So in Romans 8, the cosmos, the world, is said to be waiting and eagerly longing. And that word eagerly longing, it's a wonderful Greek word. It means it's, it's craning its neck. It's up on its tiptoes. That's a vivid picture, isn't it? It made me think about like uh, at a wedding, for example, when you know the bridesmaids are all down, and everybody knows it's the moment the bride is about to come down the aisle. How uh, you start getting these craning necks, and people are sort of you know they're they're, they're looking, they're waiting for the moment when the doors are going to open, and down comes the bride. There is this anticipation. That's the sense of it here. All creation is straining its necks up on the tiptoes, eagerly awaiting the doors to open and for the children of God to be revealed for who we actually are, which is adopted sons and daughters of God, for that moment of revelation. And this harkens back to what he has just talked about. We saw it last week, this wonderful doctrine of adoption, where God in salvation doesn't merely place us in a spot of neutrality, where now, okay, we are morally neutral, uh, we are no longer sinners, uh, we're, not, we're forgiven our sins, but he takes that extra amazing step and places us into his family, makes us co-heirs with Jesus himself, and treats us with all the rights and privileges of being his children forever. It's an amazing doctrine, adoption, the love of God to us as our heavenly Father, What we find in this text here is that creation is part of redemption. That God has a plan for us in the future, but God also has a plan for the the cosmos, for the galaxies, for the universe. That the universe is part and parcel of what Jesus redeemed. Yes, us, and we focus on that, and we rightly should because that's mainly the focus of the Bible. But here and in other passages, we come to find out that there is something God is doing in the created order as well, that Jesus' death on the cross also accomplished, and that I think someday for us will be incredibly meaningful and wonderful. 
So why is creation longing, okay? Let's, let's talk about what is going on or what has happened with creation that makes creation long for a time when it will be redeemed. And this is the big story of creation, okay? If I was uh, uh, reading a book to my, to my little girls, it would say something like that. You know, the big, the big story of creation. Lots of pictures and all the rest. No pictures in the Bible, although some of you color like there are. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and that could only be God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, what is he talking about here as we talk about creation? And this may sound obvious, like he's talking about the trees and the rivers and the stars and all of that. Well, yes, but how do we get there? Well, we get there because he, he's describing red, our redemption, and he speaks of the created order as having its own redemption. So we're talking about all non-human creation. Okay, we're talking about everything that God made up to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. This is the inanimate world. This is the animal world. This is the material world. This is the intergalactic world and the atomic level world. All of this, the text says, was subjected to futility. When did that happen? And now we're into the big story. And we've done this before. We, when we've had series and teachings on what's known as the Christian worldview, we will talk about the four main chapters of the story of the Bible. And they are this, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. What is creation? That's the Genesis account, when God created everything that is. Prior to creation, all there was was God. But God creates the physical world and everything in it, including us. The fall, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God and come under the curse of God. And death enters into the world, death enters into humanity. Redemption, this is Jesus and his cross, his death and his resurrection, conquering sin, conquering death, making now the possibility of eternal life. And then finally, consummation. Consummation is that future moment when Jesus will return and all of the judgments that are described in the Bible will be enacted. There will be final judgment, final punishment, final destiny, new heaven, new earth. So if you're wondering where we are in the story, we are right here, okay? We are after the cross and before consummation. And this is the grid that we need to view the world through. This is the grid, young people. You need to get this so you can make sense of your biology class and your world civ class and to have a grid. Basically, a Christian worldview is it's glasses through which you see the world around you. Our young people need to have this down. And the old people here too, okay? The old people here too and everybody in between so that we can make sense of our little story in the midst of the big story that God is fulfilling. You have a story, you and I, are, our church, we're a part of, a very, very small part of the grand narrative of what God is doing. Can you see your spot in it? 
But what about the cosmos? What about the galaxies? What about the animals? What about the world around us in this story and narrative? What is God doing with that? And that's what Paul brings up here wonderfully. So let's walk through this grid as it relates to Romans 8 and creation. The Bible starts with this. In the beginning, God created. Those are the first words of the whole Bible. The first thing we learn about God is that he is, and the second thing we learn about God is that he is a creator. He creates the universe. It is made by God. It is owned by God. Here's Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. God steps back from that creation. He looks at the universe, and he makes an aesthetic, moral judgment on it. He says, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It is very, very good. It is a statement in terms of the quality of craftsmanship, the aesthetic beauty, the morality, and the divine purpose for this world, which I wonder if you know what is the purpose of this world. Class, why did God make the world the way that he made the world? You've lived in it, some of you, for like three centuries. Have you ever stopped and looked around and thought, why did God make it the way that he made it? Why is that tree the way that it is? Why is the sky blue and seemingly endless? Why is the ocean so wonderful? So great to stand next to an ocean. Why did God do what he did? And we find in the Bible that God made this world as one massive self-portrait. We saw this in Romans 1, do you remember? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Here's Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God made this world as a physical expression of what he is like. Now, God is spirit, okay? God is spirit. God transcends the world. But he builds into the world in the very fabric of it from the molecules to the atoms to the, to the galaxies. All of this is a reflection of the very character of God. So the world around us is huge and complex and beautiful because God is huge, complex, and beautiful. Now he is spirit. The world, this world is not him. That's called pantheism. When you see the world around us somehow as being divine, now you're a pantheist, and there's world religions that are pantheistic, for sure. We are theistic creationists, okay? God makes the world, but he is not the world. He is separate from the world, but the world is so close to what he is like that he can say, I'm so in this world that men are without excuse. Nobody can say, I didn't know about you. He'll say, I was, I was shouting every day in the sunrise and the sunset and in the food you ate and in, the, and in the gorgeous beauty around you. Men are without excuse. So it reflects what God is like without being God. And Adam and Eve were placed in this incredible paradise, the Garden of Eden. And there, there was no death. Not even in the animal world. Think about that. And I don't get how that all worked. And there's certain animals that need animals, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how that all worked. But there was no death in the created order. 
Everything served God-given purpose in harmony with everything else around it. So that's creation. But then something very terrible happened in Genesis 3, which is the fall. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and we find that Adam was not only the representative head of Eve, he was also the representative head of all of creation. God gives to Adam what's known as the, the, uh, the cultural mandate to steward the garden. He is the one that names the animals. And in this we find that when Adam sinned, because he was the representative head of all of creation, that just like all of us sinned when Adam sinned, creation also fell into, uh, let me say it this way, creation also was under a curse. Okay, that's better said. Creation also came under the curse. And here's the moment in Genesis 3. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now the key phrase in that verse is, cursed is the ground because of you. Not just farming, which is the way that I kind of always was taught that because of the curse, you know, the, the ground wouldn't grow as well and, and it'd be harder to, to produce food. Okay, well, that's true. But to realize the curse wasn't just on the farm uh, fields, it was on all of creation. The entire universe comes under now this curse. And the result of that is now animals kill and eat each other. The weather becomes dangerous. It's still a beautiful world that we live in, amazingly beautiful world. But now you can be standing on the beach admiring the view and be killed by a tsunami. Suddenly the beauty becomes a scary beauty and a dangerous beauty. So when God cursed the ground, he cursed all creation. And that's what it means in Romans 8, that creation was subjected to futility and was under the bondage of corruption. Realize, friends, this world around us is not what it used to be. It's not what it's going to be. It is under a curse, which to me I find just amazingly encouraging because I still look around the world and I think, it's awesome, right? I mean, the coffee's amazing and the sunrise is beautiful and the mountains are majestic and the stars twinkling is awesome and a thousand other things that you look at and you think, this world is, like, it's, 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 it's just fantastic. But we're living in the cursed world. Imagine how great it was before the curse. And imagine how great it will be after it. Imagine how great it will be after it. If we live in a world that now has wilderness and wild animals and human beings exploiting the earth, imagine what it will be like when it's all as it was to be. The fall, cursed is the ground. Okay, third chapter in the Christian worldview is redemption. Redemption. And in redemption, Jesus takes the curse of God as he is on the cross. Here's Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And there we have that basic story of human's redemption, where Jesus takes the curse of our sin. He takes the penalty of our sin. He dies in our place. And we focus on that, and we rightly should. But I'm going to guess many of us have never thought about that when Jesus took the curse, he also took the curse of the universe. His death, that one central moment, was about redeeming us. But we find in Romans 8, it is also about redeeming the galaxies. Paul personifies this as creation waiting. It is still under the curse today, but it is waiting for the time when no longer under the curse. Again, back to the text. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, notice, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So just like we are waiting for our redemption, creation is also waiting. It hopes. That's the word there. And in the Bible, hope is not that, uh, you know, sort of wistful thinking. Hope is confident assurance. Christian hope is the confidence in things not seen, as Hebrews says. We're not like hoping it's going to be true, and maybe it's not. We are confident that it's true, and we're waiting for it to be realized. That that's what creation is doing now. It is hoping, it is waiting, it is anticipating redemption. And in this way, friends, you know, we hear about the world all the time. Think about all the news about environmentalism and culture, uh, climate change and, you know, a, a host of other things right now. I mean, this is as hot a button as it has ever been. And I want you to see here that the, cre- the, the Christian view of the world is so much better than the naturalism or the, the evolutionary perspective, which is just basically a nihilism. We have to save the planet. We look in the Bible and it says that Jesus saves the planet, okay? He, it is part of his plan and his redemption. And I would submit to you as well, because of that and because God called us to steward it, Unfortunately, it's, it's maybe the other side that seems to have the uh, moral high ground when it comes to caring for the world around us, not exploiting the world around us. And I would say to you Christians, we ought to be that. Why? Because this is my Father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and rounds me rings the music of the spheres. I might get the rest of it, but I think I might mess up, so I'm not going to continue the song. I just wish that Christians were known for being really good at this. Naturalists elevate nature to deity. It is their mother nature. This world is all they have, and so they venerate it. We care about it because God made it, and we are stewards in it. And so I just think we shouldn't let the evolutionists and the atheists champion environmentalism. But for now, creation groans. See that word there? Groans. It says, like a woman giving birth. Now, I'm an expert in this. (laughs) I'm not an expert, but I'm more an expert than I was about 10 years ago. I'll tell you that. That's a vivid picture, isn't it? 
And any woman here who has ever given birth to a baby knows the kind of gut-level groan that goes along with giving birth. And this is kind of what it's famous for. In fact, my five-year-old, so I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, my five-year-old has declared to us that she now is no longer interested in being a mommy because somebody told her it hurts. (laughs) Based on this picture, my three-year-old does not have the same concern. Look at that uh, photo there. She obviously can't wait to be great with child. (laughs) She's giving birth to septuplets there, I think. (laughs) Women groan, take that picture down, nobody will uh, be paying attention. Women groan in labor. I do remember Jennifer, amazing moment like I'll never forget, where it was kind of this moment as she was giving birth where they were having to decide is it, You know, is this going to be a natural birth? Is this going to be a C-section? And I just watched her truly just grit her teeth and groan (laughs) and push that precious little baby out. Women understand this. The groans of birth. What are the groans of creation? Tsunamis, earthquakes, a nature that can destroy itself with violence, the animal world eating itself up, extinction, genocide, cancer, diseases that so many here struggle with, pains and aches and getting old and death. and None of this was part of what God made. We're in it all the time, so we think it's normal. But this is not the way that God made this world to be. We, it is this way because of us. It is this way because of our sin. And creation, it's just, it's not at its best right now. It's not what it could be. It's groaning like a woman in pain giving birth. It wants to be set free. Set free to what? Notice, to obtain the freedom of the glory of God. Friends, there is a future for Christians, and there is a future for creation. This consummation, what is it? That God is going to renew this world, and there is going to be a new earth that Christians are going to live in and on forever. What does that look like? I would say it looks a lot like the paradise looked before Adam sinned. It's a paradise all over again. And here are some prophecies about what that is going to be like. Listen to this. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a, and I wasn't sure what this is, a crocus. It's a, I looked it up, it's a, a flower. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Here's Isaiah 65. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Here's Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
Now, friends, depending on your eschatology, and it's a doctrine of future things, you'll probably put this in different places. But here's the thing everybody agrees with, and that is that this is our future destiny. Our future home is this world that was described here. And I just think so many people misunderstand it. And if more people understood it, there'd be a whole lot more people wanting to be Christians. We do not spend eternity in heaven. Can I just say that again? We do not spend eternity in heaven. We spend eternity on the new earth. And that earth, by the way, in the vision of Revelation, God comes down to earth. The city of Jerusalem comes down that God may be with us and make his dwelling with us. But our future is not some sort of ethereal, floating around, spiritual thing. God raises our bodies from the dead. We're given a glorified body. We're placed in a glorified new earth. And that new earth is everything we love about this one with none of the things we hate about it. I think it's great to want to go to heaven. And I believe that those that die in the faith prior to this consummation, that's where they are, in heaven. But our eternity is not in heaven. It is in a paradise that is restored. Now, I don't know if this means that this world like, is gone. The, the, the Greek would suggest that it could be that, or it could be that God just takes it, and this is the biggest fixer-upper ever. where he just takes it and he completely remodels it and redoes it and renews it. I don't know, either is good with me. But it is everything we love about this world and so many things that we've never experienced in this world without anything that we hate. C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, which all of you should read, captures this truth. This is the last book. It's known as The Last Battle. It's at the end of the whole thing. And they describe what the new Narnia is like. The difference between old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forefoot hoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. I think of the one time I had the privilege of walking Augusta National Golf Course in Georgia. And one of the thoughts as I walked that incredibly beautiful spot on the earth was I remember thinking this is probably as close to the new, the new earth as I will ever get. Because there you have this incredibly beautiful landscape and it is immaculately cared for. It's like every blade of grass is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And you just walk around, the, the, it just it smells great, it looks great. It's this overwhelmingly beautiful aesthetic experience. I suspect you've had some of those in your own life. That moment when all of a sudden the sunset captures your attention. 
Or you happen to see the rainbow after the rainstorm. Or a deer suddenly is loping along uh, next to you in the car. Or something where all of a sudden there's this kind of echo in your heart, an ancient echo, a moment of wonder when something beautiful and harmonious rises within you a sense of something deep and meaningful, an ancient memory when everything was right in the world. And the Bible tells us that the day is coming when everything will be right again. The king is going to come. The creation is going to be renewed and restored. And let this settle in for a moment. No more winter. No more winter. Here in Indiana, I mean, if I was preaching in Florida or somewhere, they'd be like, ah, who cares? But here we're like, that's wonderful news. No more polar vortexes to deal with. Think about spring break and the new creation. Like right now, here we are, like I think half our church is in Florida right now because this is the week of spring break. I can't tell you all the people I've heard, they're down south somewhere. But spring break and the new creation, it'll be like, where do you go? You're already where everybody wants to be. There's no reason to go anywhere. It's as perfect as it could possibly be. And friends, I want to say this, the greatest beauty and wonder on the new earth is not the lions laying down with the lambs or the uh, flowers blooming in the desert, or the weather, or the food, or the fact that there is no more death. The greatest wonder in the new earth will be, and forever will be, Jesus. And the fact that God is there, and that he is dwelling with us, and that this redemption has been fully accomplished, and this renewal has been experienced within us, and in our resurrection, and throughout the galaxies of the new universe. And I just, I'm laying all that out there because I'm faithful to the text here, but really this is the thing. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? Because the only way, there is a condition in the Bible for living forever in the new paradise, and that is now in this time, of death and corruption and sin, for you to look in your own heart and to realize that this isn't simply just what Adam and Eve have done, that you have contributed yourself as a sinner, that you have rebelled against God, and to see Jesus not simply taking the curse of creation, but taking my curse, your curse upon himself, dying in your place for your sin. And to see that, to believe that, and to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The condition is that, that I must repent of my sins and place my faith and trust in what Jesus did for me. The Bible says that when I I trust in him, that my sins are forgiven, that I am redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that that redemption now, I join with all creation as I long for the day, someday, when the redemption will be fully accomplished, when I will not be in this dying body, but in a new body, and I won't be in this dying world, I'll be in a new world, a better world, far better than anything you and I have ever seen or experienced, and that will be every day forever. Are you going to be there? Why not trust in Christ? Do it today. 
It's unfortunate that the song that we sing at Christmas is a Christmas song. Because um, I think it's not a first coming song, it's a second coming song. And we'll continue to sing at Christmas, fine. But I'd like you to listen to the words of this song in light of Romans 8. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. That day's coming. Romans 8. Amen.